Welcome to the Expat Rewind Podcast. This podcast is part of the Expat Rewind PodTube experience, which is part podcast and part YouTube channel. In the podcast, I will interview other expats about something that helped them get through their first year in a new country. It can be something they wrote, a book they read, or even a social media feed. In the YouTube channel, I will share a blog that I wrote when I first moved to Taiwan in 2003. I have spent the majority of the past 15 years living overseas as an expat and hearing stories about people's experiences overcoming culture shock, and I'd like to share these stories with you. In Season 3, the Expat Rewind podcast will be published about every five weeks. I'm really excited to have you listen to this conversation that I had with expat Mo Sibyl from the More Sibyl podcast. Mo grew up in Nigeria and she loved radio so much that this paved the way for her to start podcasting herself. She moved to the U.S. in 2011. In her own words, she says she consumed more than her body weight in podcasts. <laughs> I think we are such like souls on that front. She describes the More Sibyl podcast as a show about culture and cultural nomads designed for blacks and Asians and those who love them. And as she says, who doesn't that cover? Mo describes herself as a Nigerian-born, U.S.-educated, Korean-speaking, struggling intellectual. Without further ado, let's get to Mo. Thank you so much, Mo, for joining us on Expat Rewind. Thanks for having me. So let's jump in. You're going to read something for us today, an artifact from the first year in a new country. Can you set the scene on when, where, and how, and all that kind of good stuff? This was the year 2011. It was also the year I just uh, moved into moved to the U.S. from Nigeria. And this was, I'd say, two months after my move into, into the U.S. And I love people. I mean, I enjoy people to a certain degree. But I noticed that every time I went somewhere, oh, with my husband was just like, so where are you guys from? What are your names? Oh, it's so pretty. Uh, you speak English so well. And I, that's why I said, oh, my gosh, not again. And I think that particular day, I just wasn't even having it. And so I had gone on Facebook. And as you can see, I had my BlackBerry phone then, way back when research was in motion, to those that, you know, for those that can get that joke. And it was through my BlackBerry phone. And I was, hi, everyone. My name is Tolani. And this is my husband, Tyrell. These are not our real names. We are under the Witness Protection Program. And yes, we do speak English. And looking back now, you know... <laughs> Looking back there, I thought it was, you know, that was a bit childish of me, really, in a way, because I bet those people that were just asking, you know, those questions, sometimes people just, they were probably curious about our culture. And because I just moved to the U.S. then, I had a lot of, I used to wear a lot of, you know, Nigerian attires, and that would make us stand out. And so maybe they just felt in, like, they felt in a way bold to ask us, so where are you guys from? You know, I love your dress. So there's so many things that I didn't consider in context when I put that post up. But at least I'm glad I did because I can imagine how far I've come. Nowadays, I probably wouldn't, you know, put up such a post that people ask me questions about myself. I like to engage them more to find out what exactly do you really want to know? Are you really curious about my culture or you're just being a jerk about it? That kind of thing. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. We we often joke in, in in not just in China but in Northeast Asia. There's like generally five questions people always ask you. In China specifically, it's like, what is it? Where are you from? Uh, why are you here? 
Did you have lunch? Do you have children? How old are you? How, oh, how, much, how much do you make and how much do you pay in rent? And like, it's not completely. Why are just throwing a, a question in the mix? How much do you weigh? And that way Sometimes, we can, you know, if it's a woman on woman, like if there's just a regular woman asking me, she'll probably ask me that question too. Yeah. My goodness. This is like going from first base to like fifth base. <laughs> not even getting to know the person's name. But like, well, this, this kind of things, like we have to also consider them um, with a, in a cultural context, because mm-hmm. if we're just to directly translate it to English, it seems very rude. You know, some Chinese may actually think those questions are rude, but it's probably the reason why people ask those kind of questions. Could oh. it be time? Could it just be, you know, how allegedly most Asians are perceived to be a bit more direct in some areas than, you know, Westerners are? Yeah, yeah, for know. sure. For sure. And these are things that they would ask each other. It's not like they're doing the foreigner effect. Exactly. But I can imagine how, how puzzling it might be for a foreigner. Like, wait, what? what did you <laughs> how much yeah. do I weigh? Yeah. How much do I earn? <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah, it's pretty intense. And then hearing them ask each other, it's like, oh, that's really not just because you think you can ask me different things because I, there's no like consequences. No, you really just, these are just the questions that are asked. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So do you get any, asked any questions now when people meet you? Oh, yeah, a lot, a lot. And and I think for me, as a Nigerian, you know, living in the U.S., mm-hmm. you stand out, like, from my the way I sound. They're like, oh, you have an accent. And FYI, everybody has an accent. Like, <laughs> if you can speak, we all have accents, because you sound differently to me. And I, I don't even know how I sound, because I can't really hear how, how I sound, right? But everybody has an accent. Yeah. I think the, the real question should be, where are you from? Like, you know, you tell me more about your country. Because mm-hmm. when you just approach people and say, oh, you have an accent. So my accent, of course, stands out. My hairstyle, because I have dreads. I've been, having, I've been keeping it for the past, you know, four years now. Mm-hmm. That makes me stand out. And, you know, just my look, you know, I'm dark-skinned. I'm, I've been sun-kissed, you know, melanin popping. You know, that tells a story. And, yeah, and then through my platform, you know, the stories I share. So I do get a lot, asked a lot of questions. And I think more so now, it's very important to, you know, at least give people the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Because I know we live in a climate of, you know, identity politics and so many things that are making people scared of asking questions, so much so that they might be perceived as, you know, racist, xenophobic, mm-hmm. and all that. So I want to usually explore those questions through the angle of cultural curiosity. You know, if I become American tomorrow, I mean, I'm obviously going to be Nigerian. You know, mm-hmm. there's no way I can erase that part of me. So mm-hmm. I want to embrace those two entities and show people like the beauty of pluralism and, and just knowing that we can always learn something from you know one another so yes mm-hmm. i do get i do keep i'm, I'm always going to keep getting those questions but i'm more comfortable with it now and i found it you know as a way to connect with people and mm-hmm. making them say okay it's okay you can ask these questions mm-hmm. even if they don't ask you well i help them frame it better like you know i'm cool with you asking but you could ask somebody else that same question mm-hmm. and they could come back for you you know that kind of thing so do you ask some questions back when they... Oh, I do. I always do. And they, sometimes they, they get shocked, like, oh, I'm from here. And I'm like, no, where did your forefathers migrate from? And then yeah. I go, oh, Europe or somewhere. I'm like, oh, good. Have you been visited home? And they're like, oh, no. Do you plan going? And, you know, it's not always cute to see them, you know, take that double take when you pose yeah. a question to them. So, so if you're good at giving it, you better be good at handling it because I'm right. going to ask you. You best oh, yeah. believe that, yeah. yeah. But in a very, not in a very challenging way. But also making them think like there's nothing like American. Like what does American mean? You know, um, even if you're white as snow, you're from somewhere. So what's your story? Give me your bio data. Like what's interesting about you? you know? <laughs> you 
biodata. <laughs> Give me your biodata. What, like, what's your genetic makeup? I want to know. Like, you have a story. Your blue eyes and your blonde hair. Where are you from? <laughs> you from, you know. <laughs> Everybody has a story. I don't think it precludes only people. That Everybody has a story. Yeah. Story. Yeah. And sometimes I think when I'm in a very, very optimistic mood, I think people ask those questions because they want to tell you their story. So uh, it took me a while to stop just answering defensively when I lived over, when I started living yeah. overseas. But yeah. now I'm like, oh, you want to tell me something. Okay, we're going to quickly get past my stuff and I'm going to get to you. Because no, if I you want to tell me something, tell me something. I don't, yeah, I don't right I'm bored with my story, but I want to yeah. hear yours. Yeah. And it's always funny to see the dynamic between, you know, immigrants. Because when I talk to other people that are not from here like me, we don't just start with the question of where are you from? Mm-hmm. There's, al- there's always something we're miserable about, like living in the U.S. So we start with the miserable part, and it just slips in, like, oh, oh, totally. Yeah, I can, I could guess you are from that place, but that's not what we. That's not that question of where you're from is never always our leading question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? What, what do, what do people say is the worst thing? <sighs> I mean, it depends on what phase you were in. Like when yeah. I was a student, it was just immigration issues, like, and yeah. the cost of having to fly back home. You know, and I was like, oh, I, I haven't been able to see my parents in in years and um i have to get summer internship they were just like student stuff now that i'm a little bit out of i'm out of that you know climbing and i'm mm-hmm. working out it's how much tax i'm paying so. <laughs> <laughs> there's always something to learn about i guess i mean the yeah. money never ends but hey it's what it is right <laughs> yeah yeah i know we do the same thing here in shanghai and let me tell you it's it's a pretty plush existence if you're an expat in Shanghai, 99% of the time. Oh, yeah. uh, and that's not, it's not necessarily true for the migrants within the, within the country who come into Shanghai for work because their jobs are not quite the same as foreigners that come in, which is a whole level of bullshit I'm not going to go into. Yeah. But, <laughs> but for, for foreigners from outside of the country who come in, generally those jobs are really good. So when we start, mm-hmm. I catch myself pretty quick because I'm like, look did you have a job better than this in your home country? Cause I sure as hell didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I'm going to kind of cut this short and move on to something else. Cause I'm like, nah, this is a very pretty <laughs> situation right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on to the next one. Sure. Um, the next one I would like to share would be, um, this was September 30th, 2011. And this was a month and some days after I'd moved to the U S and it was also through my Blackberry. You're going to be seeing a lot of Blackberry posts on here. Uh, and he said, it wasn't until the day I walked all the way home that I realized how fast cars go. So um, for those that might not really know, like when you, usually for those coming here to pursue a PhD program, which I did, you probably had a career way back where you were coming from before moving to the U.S. And then coming here as a grad student, um, as an international grad student, there's so many things that you have to like adjust to. And for me, it was just, you know, the financial aspect of it. And I had a good paying job back home and coming here and having to rely on stipends. And then my country being, you know, I'm Nigerian, by the way, my country being, you know, such, <laughs> oh my gosh, an interesting place where, you know, the economy is very stable. The exchange rate of my currency, this is a Naira to the dollar was just, you know, really a bit, well, it wasn't as bad as it is now, but then it was still substantial. So just having to like leave below what I had been always used to. Mm-hmm. And so um almost like going from like a middle class to like a, I won't call it like a low class. Like technically grad students are below the poverty line. 
I think we all should qualify for some, you know, social security and right? yeah. stamps and, you know, um, some mm-hmm. benefits and all that. So, um, that meant, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to buy a car you know, the, until like, I think the second year or so. So I had to rely on the buses a lot. And yeah. that was really humbling for me because I wasn't used to that, you know, in Nigeria. Um, well, solely, I think. And I think here it's a little bit difficult because sometimes the buses don't go everywhere you want to go, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember that day was, I had gone studying in the library and I wanted to go home, but I missed the bus, you know. And this was before Uber, by the way. This was 2011. So mm-hmm. imagine that. So I had to walk all the way home. And it wasn't as sad as it sounded, you know. In fact, I, could, I probably called it, called, um, called a cab or something, but that's going to cost me about maybe $20, which was a lot Ouch. of cash back then. So I walked all the way home and, you know, and it just it really humbled me because, I realized that this was just like a one-off moment for me, but imagine people that had to do that almost every day, you know? So, um, yeah, it, it, that was just what happened that day. I, yeah. Was it down now? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm looking up. I don't know the currency in Nigeria. And I saw it's Naira, N-A-I-R-A. Wow. It looks beautiful. I love it. Well, every place else in the world has beautiful currency except the U.S. It's beautifully weak. <laughs> It's beautifully oh. weak. <laughs> oh, okay, but the colors are beautiful. The colors are vibrant. Yeah, in the US, all the like dollars are like the same color, which I think you know that needs to be revamped. But more same color, same size. Yeah. So same size. What, yeah. What What were you doing in Nigeria before you went to grad school in the US? What job? Oh, um. So I'm a pharmacist by mm-hmm. uh, profession. I don't practice mm-hmm. anymore. I do research now. So then I was working, you know, I, I, I worked with Chevron for a bit mm-hmm. and then I worked with, um, um, Harvard Prepfa, which is like a HIV clinic in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Well, in developing countries to reduce the, you know, the incidence and, um, the mortality of HIV AIDS in, in developing countries like Nigeria. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked as a pharmacist there with, um, patients that had HIV and, um, opportunistic infections like tuberculosis. So. I had a good paying job. I was, you know, I was doing quite well for myself, yeah. you know, in Nigeria. So coming to grad school was a step down for me in mm-hmm. financial, but it's kind of like that dip you go through, but then, you know, they're still going to come back up and do a lot better, mm-hmm. but I'm doing a lot better than I've ever done in my life. And that's a good thing. Nice. And that's yeah. what should happen with education. I know you, that's yeah. what you should expect, you know, which yeah. is why for me, and I think as a grad student that isn't from here, I need to acknowledge my privilege in that. Mm-hmm. I didn't come out with a lot of student loans. I have friends that went through college here mm-hmm. and we were, we were in grad school together. They had to, you know, they had to, they had the burden of paying for their undergrad, you know, mm-hmm. college loans and then their grad school. <clears throat> Some of them had loans. Too. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't have any student loans. So I'm just putting oh, that out. Oh, I'm so jealous. Oh. I did for my undergrad, but my husband was very smart. He knew that in the U.S., if you find a program that has what you want, that has like a fellowship where you can, you probably did something like this where you like teach or do some sort of research yeah. work. You get tons of it. Yeah. You get tons of it waived. And that's what we ended up doing for the masters and the two years of the PhD that we did. So I have very yeah. little debt from my graduate school, but yeah. I have tons from my undergrad. Cause I just didn't realize how yeah. much I was accumulating. And yeah, how- I think I think the college college um debt you know issue here is a big deal here. I think I don't think college should be that expensive. No, like what people pay in a whole year that funded me through all of my five years in pharmacy school. I used to pay maybe like um three hundred four hundred dollars mm-hmm. for my tuition you know yearly, and that was still considered a bit you know pricey. You know, wow, I know, I know. It, 
Wow. <laughs> I remember when I went to Cal Poly in uh, in California. It's a state school. Uh, oh, California Polytechnic, is that right? Yeah, yeah, California Polytechnic State University at San Luis Obispo. Quite possibly one of the longest names for a university. Ever. <laughs> state school, and it, I graduated in 2001. So I remember the fees being about, just the fees being about 700 US dollars per quarter. We were on quarter, not semester systems. So there were at least three quarters a year. So I remember that being cheap compared to a lot of other places, but then the cost mm. of living on living in coastal California, especially as someone in her mid twenties who didn't want to live in a dorm with six other people mm-hmm. and who wanted to have a car and all that kind of stuff. It just, I, I think most of my loans honestly came from lifestyle, not necessarily from school, oh, <laughs> except for the science books, because those creatures were evil. Like science <laughs> were like $200 a pop and they kept changing editions that you had to buy the new ones. And I'm like, you guys are making it difficult to get an education. (laughs) But yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's crazy. It's crazy. So did I hear you right that you had a degree in pharmacy in Nigeria and then you came to the US and did you redo the same kind of degree? Yeah. So no, in Nigeria I had, yeah, similar actually. In Nigeria I have a, well, I got my degree in my, um, bachelor's in pharmacy mm-hmm. and then I came here and got a master's in they call it pharmaceutical uh-huh. school sciences sciences mm-hmm. and a PhD as well but um the description will be health economics and outcomes research so like policies um pharmacy administration different programs have different names for it like mm-hmm. social and administra- administrative pharmacy yeah sure. but the, my my PhD degree says my diploma says you know PhD in um, doctor of philosophy in oh. sciences. but it's you know it, it's a very broad you know concept because they use yeah. the same wording for those that did you know from a school chemistry pharmacology and all of that we just fall under that broad term but then if you ask me or look through my cv you can have a viable or oh, she's a health economics kind of person yeah, yeah. Sure, sure 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 wow 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 all right should we go to the next one <laughs> we go to Wait, the next one remind me how many um, we have so i can time Wait. speaking right. how many do we have total Oh, um, I, th- I think I can do like three more after this one. Yeah. Cause I, okay. I, I gave you about 13, but I don't, I think some of them are like, like I was able to eliminate some of them cause they're similar stories, you know? Oh, okay. So this one is quite long. So brace yourself, right? And this was September of 2011. A lot of gems were dropped in, in 2011 that were, you know, a bit more personal than I think I would ever share. <laughs> so, <laughs> and this wasn't through my Blackberry. I probably sent this post out through my computer or something. So I, it, it reads, uh, people I want to talk to right now are so distant from me. Everyone, just like me, has got carried away and so engrossed with their busy lives. Life was a lot simpler way back when we had no worries in the world. Wherever you are, if I have ever touched your life in any way, remember that the status is dedicated to you and the memories I have left of you. So this was way back before WhatsApp, before um, Facebook Messenger became a thing before Instagram became, you know, very popular and before Twitter became in that place where you could go attack people. There wasn't like, uh, if you think about the way I see the, the social media data world right now, I think about of like a huge water cooler where those that maybe use WhatsApp congregate on one side of the water cooler and then everybody like, you know, meeting at different spots. Then we didn't have a lot of stresses like, you know, where you could like stand or a lot of angles to like stand and communicate with people. So it's usually with Facebook. And by people, I meant those that I left behind. Because I'm um, leaving Nigeria and moving here and starting again in my 20s was probably one of the bravest things I did. Because you're, you're, you're leaving friends behind. You're, you know, your culture is, is going to be eroded a little bit because you have to 
in a way, um, have a way to tie those two cultures that you, your culture and the one that is predominant here, have a way to like homogenize them. So I felt a lot of homesick. I felt homesick a lot of times. And I guess it was, writing was a way to express that. And, you know, when you leave the first month, you know, people are still calling, you're still able to, you know, reach out to them and talk to them and check in on them. But after a while, you know, everyone starts dropping off, not for any reason, just, you know, people just move on. And you find out that the jokes you, you have all had in common before was no longer relevant. You find that, you know, um, and again, you also consider that it's a huge, well, not as huge as Niger- U.S. and China, but Nigeria to the U.S., then the time difference could range between six to eight hours, depending on what zone you live in. Live in. And so by the time you get home, you're tired, you're supposed to call people, and it's like maybe midnight or past midnight then. And and so I just, I just, it just dawned on me like all the friends I had made in my 20s, like leading up to my 20s, I don't really have a lot of them, you know, around me anymore. And, you know, and I'm a very social person. I, I get energy from people. I'm a bit, I'm more extroverted than introverted. And so that, that was, you know, very hard for me and having to like start over again. I mean, I still was able to keep in touch with people because I have friends that we don't talk all the time, but every time, anytime we, we find ourselves again, it's like we never even parted. But there's some friends that I wish, wish I could see every day and, you know, talk to every day. But so that was that post, you know. It was a little bit melancholic and it just reflected the state of mind that I was in homesickness. Right. Yeah. I identify with that so much. It's ridiculous. Um, I don't know. Okay. You're from Lagos, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So how is it like there, like when people go through like their schooling and they finish university, do they usually stay in the same place or do they move around the country a lot? Well, it depends. And I said, so there's of a course, program yeah. that is built in, like right after college, there's a mandatory program you're supposed to the way in Korea where they have like the two year mandatory military service mm-hmm. you're supposed to we have a one year paramilitary training and everybody has to man yeah. And the idea behind that was to send you from wherever you were, like mm-hmm. a bit of you know, getting like acculturated to other parts of Nigeria. So I grew up in the southwest, but I was sent to the north, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So you have people that would stay back wherever they were posted. Maybe they'd be ties there. And so that was a way to like get people transplanted to other communities they probably wouldn't have any business in. And I thought, you know, it was it was a good model in a way, but then it had some challenges. So yes, but for the most part, I live in Lagos. It's it's such a center of attraction mm-hmm. and excellence. And that's like the slogan for a center of excellence. People tend to want to go to Lagos a lot because mm-hmm. it's kind of like New York. They feel like if you make it in Lagos, you can make it anywhere. So as a result, there's a, there's a mass migration and mm-hmm. overutilization of resources. The roads aren't very good. Mm-hmm. There's traffic, traffic everywhere. Pollution is like skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, the sad thing about that is that most of these other areas that could have been developed, if people had stayed there, are not getting all the resources they need. Mm-hmm. So for the most part, because I'm from Lagos, I can say, yes, people don't tend to leave Lagos. Mm-hmm. But else something was really, I mean, the, the, the number of people that live in Lagos compared to those that are moving into Lagos, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's almost negligible. So almost like people just want, people move into Lagos almost all the time. Mm-hmm. But I've hardly, I've hardly had friends that would leave Lagos. For those that would leave Lagos, usually it's for maybe other better places, like maybe Abuja, mm-hmm. which is like the federal capital territory, like your DC. So like imagine someone living in New York to DC, it's still the same, mm-hmm. you know vibe and you know mm-hmm. high cost of living or people that just traveled out of the country yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah the the reason why i ask is because in the us there's two big periods of kind of 
people moving, not just these periods, but these are the probably the two biggest ones in people's lives is just after high school and just after university. Yeah. And that's when people move the most, especially across the clear across the country and yeah. stuff like that. So I, that feeling of isolation and wanting to reach out to the people that are right there geographically next to you, I was kind of getting waves of that from my life. From as you were reading that post, I was like, "Oh, I remember." Suddenly, people that are close, like geographically close for a long time, yeah. are not there, yeah. and you're suddenly across the country or across the world, or it's just not easy anymore, or you're just too tired to reach out, or there's a big time difference when you try to, and and that's what, yeah, yeah. And I think the thing about my country is that you know um, that three predominant languages that. We have a lot of languages, so people shouldn't come for me at this. Mm-hmm. We have three main ones, right? Oh my and god! <laughs> usually, yeah, three. There are three major. Only, only. <laughs> only, only. Okay, English is one. What are the other two? No, English isn't actually one of them. English it's is not. official. Okay. No, it's not. I mean, surprisingly enough, um, there's Yoruba, there's Hausa, and there's Igbo. Oh, I'm, I'm Yoruba. I'm, I'm, it's a, Yoruba is a tribe, and it's also the name of the language that we speak. So when people move sometimes, they might move from Lagos to another city in southwest part of Nigeria. So you're not losing a lot of, how I put it, culturalness or culture in a way because it's still the same language they might really speak there. And so people can leave, you know, Lagos to go to school because the, the schools in Lagos are very competitive to get into. Mm-hmm. So maybe like go to like neighboring cities like, you know, um, Abel Kota, which is like mm-hmm. in Southwest. So they're not losing like culture like that because it's still Yoruba to speak. But you can have some people that live in Lagos and go to the east, eastern part of Nigeria mm-hmm. or the northern part just to school, you know, and then that can also make them stay behind and, you know, build roots around there and, you know. So, yeah, right. College is another way where people can, like, mm-hmm. you know, put mm-hmm. and start over again. And sorry, the reason why I was surprised about English is because there's so many Nigerian authors that write in English. So I'm like, wait, that's not even an official language and they're that damn good at writing in the language is just (laughs) impressive (laughs) you're doing that thing again um so we were colonized by the british people yeah you know and english is still one of our official languages Mm -hmm. actually yes and um all of the official documents are in english Mm -hmm. but maybe for translation purposes they might translate them into those three major languages i Mm -hmm. tell you but almost every nigerian you meet can speak english why because that's what we're taught in school. Like yeah. English was, we're taught, everything was taught in English, you know, and then you can branch off and take one native language as like an elective course. Okay. Yeah. So that, that, that can help because I grew up speaking English and Yoruba at home, mm-hmm. you know, but I could speak it Well, writing Yoruba was, it's a totally different monster. Mm-hmm. So school is where, school is that place that builds your vocabulary mm-hmm. and helps you with your writing aspect of your mother tongue. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, Almost every Nigerian is bilingual because mm-hmm. we speak English and then we speak something else. Right, 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 right. All right. Should we move on to the next one? Yes, yes. So um, the next one is, I'm a stat nerd. I love statistics. I, I see the world. I mean, statistics for me is one thing that I think gives everybody, even if you're conscious of it or not. Conscious of it or not. So this was from October of 20, 2011 as well. Mm-hmm. And it was to understand to understand God's thoughts, we must study statistics, for these are the measure of his purpose. And it was written by Florence Nightingale. And um, I love that post because, I mean, everyone knows um, Florence Nightingale, Nightingale as a nurse, but I'm sure most people don't remember that, you know, she was also a stat head. And um, for her, 
I think when I I got that post from probably one of my stat professors when I used to take stats back in school then in grad school. And I never for once you know, thought that that, that me Florence could say that kind of thing. I didn't know anything about her. I just knew her as someone that was, you know, a compassionate nurse and the model nursing after her and all that. So, but on reading more about that, I realized that for her, statistics wasn't just a subject, it was a religion, you know, and that really made me connect more to her because I have... I have, I, I love stats. I, I, like I said, I think math and statistics, that the foundation of everything we do, science as a whole, you know, whether we want to um, accept, it controls our lives in many ways or not. And the way she said about, you know, to understand God's thoughts, we must also study statistics. It's like, yes, you know, <laughs> it's a religion, like, you know, pray and then do math, you know, and do statistics. So that was just that. There's nothing more to that post than, you know, just me gushing about my love for statistics and, you know, <sighs> How Florence Nightingale helped me tie that together. Oh, I don't even know if I should share on that one. <laughs> have, you, have you always felt that way about math or statistics or science or all? Um, so I didn't have a very good math teacher growing up. I didn't have good math teachers growing up because mm-hmm. I used to be very scared of math. Like mm-hmm. I used to, be, my dad would have to like sit me down by the table and you know force me to do my assignment. And I remember through tears me trying to like you know do basic problems. Mm-hmm. But I love science. Science has always been that. Mm-hmm. It was just before I got into college, I had to take like, like just imagine you're preparing for the for the SATs or so. Mm-hmm. So I had to take like you know um like a remedial like a tutor. I had I had a lesson teacher that you know I would go to to help me to teach me math. Mm-hmm. And my goodness, Stephanie, like it was as if I was touched by an angel in a very non you know um, molesty way. Yeah. Like, he opened my brain and for the first time in my life I understood my purpose in life and it was just to keep doing math and statistics. I was so moved that year that I, I had applied to study chemical engineering because it was gonna be math and science and all of that. So yes, I love statistics. In fact, in grad school I took more than my share of what was needed for me wow. to graduate. Every 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 semester I'll take like one or two star classes to balance like the theoretical part of it. And I see you statistics a lot at work. You know, I love data. I love numbers. I love, you know, I just, it, it's, it's exciting to me. I get excited by numbers. That's just me. Yeah. I still feel that way. I still feel very strongly about that. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I love hearing women say it too, because I have too many, too many female friends who are like, oh, I'm not good with math. I freaking love math. I actually <laughs> didn't, I wasn't, I didn't understand that I liked math for a long time because it was easy for me. Yeah. Or until a certain, until I got above a certain level, but up yeah. until that point, it was so easy. I was just like, it's like breathing. But then when it got too hard and then I came back to the stuff that I could do, I was like, I started to feel the rhythm of it and I started to mm. see the logic in it. And I started to really like it. I don't know that I have the same relationship with the statistical side of it, but the yeah. math and the logic of it and being able to quantify things and being able to go, okay, we think this, are, is there, are there numbers I can play with to prove or disprove this idea? Like yeah. that, that's very satisfying to me. I think for me, those boil down to having like the right research. Like mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, they made it seem so bad if we ain't good at math growing up. And sometimes it wasn't about the student. It was about the teacher. Like if you weren't teaching math, like, cause I'm very visual. Mm-hmm. I'm a visual learner. Like you can't just tell me something is that and that. Why is it that way? Like I need to know the logic behind it. I think that's why I actually went to get a PhD because mm-hmm. I have more questions and answers about my life and things around me. 
And so they will teach you, like, just take it that way. Or I'm like, why are we doing it that, this way? Like, explain it to me. And I think that was the gap that was missing throughout my formative years until I met that, you know, tutor. And I, for the life of me, I remember his face, but I don't remember his name. And he changed my life. And he has no idea, you know. I wish I could remember his name. He's changed my life in so much, so many ways yeah. that now I don't understand that. Sometimes you need to like, tailor teaching um, skills to, to students because my while growing up in Nigeria, everybody were taught the same way, without consideration for what kind of learning you know you were good at. Mm-hmm. Some people are good at visual learning. Some are like some are visual learners. Some mm-hmm. are auditory learners. Some are you know tactile learners. Mm-hmm. They weren't even even like try to find that by your own you know learning style. It was just one 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 size fit all, which I thought was really horrible. When I grew up in the seventies, it was it was similar to it was very very like there's a lot of classrooms globally I've noticed where the norm is for the teacher to stand in the front of the room and talk about the subject, <laughs> even if it's a language, even if it's math, it's just to talk about it. They might write <laughs> something on the board, but they're just talking at the students, and it just it frustrates me to no end. And I, I want to say it's one place, and we can just change that culture, and then everybody there will be really successful. But the norm globally seems to be that really archaic model, and you can't talk to students about a subject, they have to experience that topic, that's, that skill. That's yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. So, so. But things are changing slowly, slowly. slowly Thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think online, I think the things that are available online, I think students realizing how much they can learn outside of their classroom. To get I know, I know, I know. So the online. internet, internet was, was probably going to, you know, save us all at the end of the day. I hope so. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> As long as people don't like spend too much time on social media before it does, I guess. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I love how Mo talks about math and learning math and how she was inspired by that. And here's some math I'd like to throw you away as well. If you like this conversation, if you like the podcast episodes that you've heard so far of Expat Remind, I would like to ask you to do one small thing for me. Could you pass this podcast on to other people that you think would like it? I have some ideas on how you can do this. You ready? How about screenshotting the podcast episode and uploading that to social media? How about just sharing the link? expatrewind.podbean.com and any other way that you think would be good to tell people about this podcast. 2019 is my year to share and grow this podcast with as many people who would enjoy it as possible. I really appreciate your help. So thank you. Speaking of social media, let's go to the next one. Oh, that's a good thing. I'll give you that one. I think I have two more. The first, the last, this one is really short. To be or not to be an organ donor. So this was September of, um, of 2016, was September 16th. I remember I had gone to the DPS or the M, M, MDV or M, model, MVD, DMV. Thank you. See, my brain is, it's morning here. So for those listening, I can rise and shine, but not at the same time. So I had gone to like, (laughs) I had gone to get my license and there was a form you had to fill. And they asked me if I wanted to be an organ donor. No one has ever asked me that in my life. Mm. I mean, in my country, we don't, you don't, we don't carry cards about our persons, you know, just indicate whether we're an organ donor or not. And it made me pause a lot. Like, huh, you know, these are real ethical issues that can, you know, be helpful to people. But I just felt like, right, because, you know, when you're filling your forms, like for your license, you have to do it quickly. You had no time to like, be like, hey, 
by the way, can I just go home, give me like 30 days to think about this, put my life and affairs in order, and then I'll come back again. And so that question was, you know, it made me, it made me pause a little bit and just think about like the implication of doing this or not doing it. Like if I was going to do this, it was going to have a lot of implications, not just for me, for those that will be there if I, when I, when I leave this, earth, when I leave earth and die, you know, and what their responsibilities are going to be, be like. And of course, there's always that public desirability for those that are registered or you're donors. People tend to look at you as altruistic and all that. So yeah, I mean, that was what that post about was about, like to be or not to be an organ donor. I felt a little bit, you know, um, like I was included in something because another aspect of that was as an immigrant, like you find yourself excluded a lot of so many things. Mm-hmm. And so there was a cynical part of me that thought, oh yeah, well, I'm not good for your green card, but I'm good for my, your, my organs are good for you guys, right? Like all of a sudden I'm as American as I can be because I can give you my organs or things like that. So yeah, I mean, it was just the post evoked a lot of, you know, emotions in me. And yeah, that was, that's all about that. That's wild. What do you end up picking? That's a very good question. I didn't do it because my husband was freaking out. Like, I was like, no, no, no. Okay, so you're in Alabama, right? No, I'm in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma. So, yeah, then as a student, they they give you as long. So the first year you get one year. And then when you come back and renew it, yeah, yeah, for real. When you come back and renew it, it's tied to your I-20, like your duration of stay in the country. So I got five years afterwards. And then when I came to Oklahoma City, I was on the H-1B, which is like another visa um, category for those that are employed. I got for two years because that was the extension of my H-1B. But now that I, you know, I've switched over from a visa, I'm, do- I'm no longer on a visa. I have, you know, quite a number. I have quite a lot of years on my on my um, driver's license. So, yay, I don't have to go to DMV anytime soon. Um, do you think at any point in the future you would switch it to yes? And you don't have to answer that question. But oh, yeah. I mean, um, I'm, I've been considering a lot of things because I donate blood regularly. You know, mm-hmm. I do donate blood regularly. And, and then for me, I think at that time, even though I, it made me think about it a lot, but at that time, I just, I felt like it was, I was going to rush into saying yes. But as t- that's been what, eight years since then. And I think it's time to have that conversation. And thanks for the reminder. It's time to have that conversation with my husband. Because I do believe that, you know, when you die, because I'm Christian, when you die, your body stays on earth, but then I'm still alive. My soul is still alive in, in heaven and all that. So, um, yeah, my earthly body is just a vessel, you know, and if it's going to help somebody, if they can actually take my brain and, you know, I'm studying for science and improve the world, that, because my brain, you know, is amazing. I have an amazing brain. That... <laughs> Selflessly speaking, of course, because you know I, it's all about you know what you contribute, <laughs> contributing to humanity. Of course, of course, my eyes. You know, I have wonderful eyes. You know, and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and my heart is so. I have a I have a good heart, like warm heart, like well, that's the physical part of it. But yes, um, I'm I'm more likely to say yes now if I'm asked that question, and I yeah. think you know, um, I, I think it's it's I can see how that could be beneficial, and I know it's never gonna benefit me as a person. But the fact that it's going to change someone's life in the future or whenever that happens, yeah. you know, whenever God says, I think it's something we should all consider. But consider carefully, not because you just want to feel good about it. Because these are big implications. And I feel like your your next kin of, your next of kin, you know, give them that, let them buy into the idea as well. Because mm-hmm. they might be done having to do with all of this, you know, when you go away. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an interesting point. As an American, I grew up with that, knowing that. Like I, I was the youngest in my 
immediate family and bigger family. And so I constantly hear people talking about getting their driver's license and all these things. And you look at their license. And so seeing the donor card was kind of a normal thing growing up. But if you're coming into the country, not being used to that, it's not in the driver's manual. I don't think. Mm -mm. No, it's not. It's it's just right there on the form. I'm like, wait, what? about that because that's a very different I didn't see that coming yeah Yeah. the last thing you want to do when you're about to take your driver's test and you're all nervous is to think about what I'm going to do when I die like that's I know (laughs) really deep conversation you want to have not with the paper in like 10 seconds (laughs) I needed like a a a glass cup of a strong whiskey to like go with that (laughs) because it feels like that should be like that and like the idea of a will and like all these things should be thought about together not when to turn when you can turn on a red light when to yeah. how much distance you should have with the car in front of you those are not things that ha- have to do with my organs you're, when i'm you're dead very right you're very yeah. right i mean i guess that that's a i wish it was a, a better way of especially for those that are not from here hmm. because that made me step back a little bit like huh that one there's a possibility of doing this and then why should we rush it over right it's the kind of like you know you like somebody and then you go on a first date and you want to you know have sex together and you're doing it right there by the bus stop like you know no, like let's go somewhere intimate and you know, um, sit down and talk about all this stuff fully. Like, what our expectations are gonna be? I feel like it was rushed, and so that might make people like me that could have done it right there and there, pause for concern. And I feel like they probably need to do a lot more. As far as for those that are not from here, letting them know the importance and what it entails. It was just a line, a line with yes or no, and I'm like, this is a lot. Like for just me taking like one path that can, you know, change my life. Like I need my information. Who do I talk to? But I'm as a DMV, you know, people don't talk to you there. (laughs) And for the listeners, Mo during that entire sex analogy had a completely straight face with no smile. And I could, Oh (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. How did you do that? Sorry, I was, just, I was just going straight for the point. That was just like an analogy no, of the way. No, no, you just threw me because you were like, with my religion, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly we went to having sex outside a bus analogy. I just was like, what just happened? <laughs> oh, sex is beautiful. I'm just throwing that out there. Of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> Woo! No, it's, but yeah, all of all of this being that it's a really big cultural difference. And I wonder if anybody has told the DMV this so they could put it in the stinking thing. I know there's more, quote unquote, Americans taking the test than, than immigrants or yeah. international yeah. students or what, what have you. But still, I mean, that needs yeah. to be in there. I know, um, right? I'm, yeah. I hope they're listening to this now because you could get a wider pool of people. You know, or even having like a like a public group and having those that have benefited from mm-hmm. organ donation yeah. come tell their stories, you know? Yeah. And maybe those that have donated, you know, some, some things you can donate that wouldn't like take away stuff from you. But at least the importance of that should be done thoughtfully, not just on question number 21 of your driver license form before you move to the next one, how many sexual partners you have and things like that. So yeah, I, I didn't think it was, you know, thoughtfully done. Yeah. I, I have been faithfully following Grey's Anatomy for far too long. So I hear oh about organ <laughs> I know. I love the first three years. And then after then, it, I know. Like, it's just it became... like a, a friend that I have to keep in touch with for some Good reason. luck with you. I, I, right? I, I, my condolences. I stopped oh, after before. So. Oh, it's so bad. And then when they killed off, like, McDreamy, I was like, okay. She that's kills everybody off. I mean, that's Shonda Rhimes. Everybody... Everyone you latch onto, dead. 
every every episode there's some major event that happens in the hospital or there's somebody who dies that you really love or somebody hooks up and has sex near a bus i mean it's just ridiculous just ridiculous so yeah but i but i'm for some reason dedicated to that so i i know way too much about organ donation at this point but yeah. when i moved it's funny because of all the countries i've lived in outside the u.s mm-hmm. it's when i moved back back to china two years ago that i started to look around at the traffic and the questionable driving practices that i finally went huh I don't think they have that as part of their driver's license or as part of their ID card. I don't think there's a thing to tick. And I actually thought of that in my brain. I was like, I don't think I've heard and ever heard anybody say that there's a thing where they can volunteer to donate their organ. It might be automatic. They have a separate department for it. I don't know. And I wouldn't even know how to broach that with a, with a local friend. Hi, what happens to your organs when you die? <laughs> that's an interesting like, I'm in a podcast brunch group and honestly if it comes up in that group I'd be more than happy like if we're talking about medical services or something I'd be like hey yeah. I wonder you know in the U.S. we do this what do you guys do with your organs like yeah. that would be okay but just a random one-on-one lunch I feel like that would be crossing a line somehow you guys ask yourself how much you weigh they can throw in that question to like you know to your icebreaker questions you already have, to, to the running list of icebreaker questions you already have. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I feel like there's there's some some knives involved in one and not another. I just don't know if that's, if that's happening. If anybody listening happens to know uh, if know. there is a voluntary organ donation process, yeah. know, please do let me know and I'll pass on the information. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Dear um, three listeners, by the way. No, okay. Let's move on um, to the next one. <laughs> um, this is this is gonna be the last two ones. So this is from. It's actually my signature, like my email signature. I have been using the signature for the past. I, I can't remember, maybe eight or seven years. And the first, and this was posted September of 2011. And it's be cautious to all, but intimate with few, and let those few be well tried before you give them your confidence. And that was written by George Washington, our former president, and or the former president of the U.S. Well, one of the presidents of the U.S. I think he was the founding father, right? One of the founding fathers, mm-hmm. or the first yeah. president of the U.S. Actually, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so I like that post. I think that, and like I said, it's one of my um, is my signature. I've been using that for many years, and I think it summarizes just how I relate with people. Like when I meet people for the first time, they usually say, "You're nice. You're easy to talk to." And I am all of that. But then I have learned how to, because the problem with me was I didn't know how to define my circles. Mm-hmm. Everybody just got in. It was like, oh, you know, and I love easily. I love quickly. I love easily. I try to see the good in people around me. Mm-hmm. But then after a while, you start learning that the world doesn't work that way because everybody doesn't behave the way you behave. So I've learned to be discerning and be discriminatory. Mm-hmm. And discriminatory not in, the, in the sense of, you know, race, no. It's the understanding that me and this person, we can't be compatible. But it's okay. I can still give them the um, kindness and accord them the respect they deserve. But they don't have to be in my circle, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to give them my confidence. And there's somebody that just wastes your time and energy. They just suck life out of you. You're like, no, you're too toxic for me. Or I'm too toxic for you, you know. Mm-hmm. So that, I always try to remind myself, like, be kind to everybody you meet. But as far as intimacy, don't go 
don't give that to everybody. You know, it's something sweet. And, and because if you're giving that to everybody, those that actually deserve in your life, you're not getting it. So I found myself not spending time and doing, you know, needful things with those that really love me and care about me. Like I'm taking them for granted. And so I had to re-strategize and adjust my energy levels, mm-hmm. you know. And so that that's what that post is about. Did you learn that... I almost want to say it's like a boundary lesson. Did you learn that lesson before or after you had come to the U.S.? Oh, trust me, the universe and God has been throwing that lesson my way, but I wasn't learning it. <laughs> and the thing about that is that you keep repeating the class and failing, you know, oh, yeah. the grade and you keep taking it until one big thing happens. You know, like, then you sit down with yourself and then you start seeing the pattern. Like, mm-hmm. you've been putting yourself in situations where, you know, some people just take advantage of that thing you have. Because I have a, there's a tender sensitive sensibility about me. Mm-hmm. And people can see it as, oh, she's just being naive about the world. And they will take advantage of that. But I have people that want to protect that in me, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm as cynical as I come, but people that I care about, I care about them, like, you know, to a degree. And, and, and so for those that have, you know, betrayed my confidence, it's because they probably saw it was, they thought of something to just, you know, teach her a lesson or, I don't know, in a twist, maybe in a twisted way, or just, you know, see something and I've to just take advantage of her, you know. Mm-hmm. So a big thing happened in my life where a friend that I had trusted, you know, stole from me and lied about me. And, you know, and then when I even confronted them, it was like, I mean, in fairness to that person, I think they probably have like some borderline personality or yeah. a narcissistic complex because it's still shocking to me, you know, the degrees that they went to. And I didn't even barely scratch the surface of all the things they did and said. Because I just want to go down that rabbit hole. So yes, I have learned to differentiate. You know, you know, I would be nice to you. I'll point to you along your merry way, but you don't have to come in. Yeah. Like no, it's it's shut. No, it's VIP access only. If I scan your badge, if it doesn't go beep beep, no, you can't enter, man. Have a nice day and off on your merry way. So yeah. <laughs> Powerful lesson to learn. Yeah, wow. and I'm still learning it. I'm still learning it. I just didn't. I'm glad I didn't learn at a cost. You know, that would you know really damage me because I didn't want to change to a person that was distrustful of the world around me. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be always suspicious of people around me and their motives. It's no way to live. I don't want to live that way. Mm -hmm. So I've had to surround myself with people that are willing to nurture that part of me. But at the same time, I had to be wise about, you know, this kind of things because people are not going to behave just because you behave in a certain way. They're going to, you know, fall in line accordingly. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I have far too many stories about this. I, li- I lived in Los Angeles and oh I don't goodness. want to perpetuate care, uh, stereotypes, stereotypes. But, but they exist for a reason. And people move to Los Angeles to recreate themselves yeah. and to be uh, many times to be in an industry that is make believe. And yeah. I moved from the East coast where people are very blunt and in your face to mm. a place where people generally tell you what they want to become. And in my early 20s, I was 21. And so it was really, uh, it was really hard to distinguish (laughs) reality, like what somebody is versus what they're telling me they are. I had to learn pretty fast because it started to be not dangerous, but just unhealthy. Not safe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in your 20s, you're still exploring life. I mean, I don't know what the 20s were like. My 20s was very... I was scattered brain. Yeah. I was, yeah, I was just trying to find myself. So, and I got a lot of lessons in my twenties, but I just wasn't paying attention because there's so many things competitive for my interest. Now in my thirties, I'm, you know, at a point where 
I'm I'm wiser now. But in your twenties, there's not so much you can learn from, you know. Because yeah. you're still trying to figure out life. Well, yeah, and I I had moved out there for a guy, and he was the kind of the same thing. He wasn't lying, but he definitely wasn't compatible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I think I put a lot. I projected a lot of stuff onto him that didn't uh, exist. Like and, you were expecting them to be something that they couldn't even give you in the first place. Yeah, so I had detached from him early. So I was floating by myself in a completely new city slash state slash side of the uh, country uh, that I was. So uh, I was like fully supporting myself, going through school, all this kind of stuff. So the people that were being deceitful, it was kind of pulling me down when yeah. I was just barely barely making it. So I had to learn really fast how to you know, kind of differentiate who, not who could help me, who couldn't help me, but who would damage me. And I had to really push them away and who can be in my life and not make me one step closer to homelessness. I mean, I really, really had to distinguish that crap early, but it was hard in a place where people literally go there to recreate themselves and be that recreation. Everybody like La La Land. (laughs) Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, I learned a lot of things on how to present myself physically because it was such a, a visually uh focused society but then it was also yeah. like I had to learn how to protect myself emotionally similar yeah. very very similar to what you just described so yeah I, uh, I get that so much all right um I have Love one that. final one which is kind of like mm-hmm. another um signature of mine and it's also by George Washington but a different George Washington is George Washington Carver ah yeah yeah and I think it ties to, cause I, you know, it ties to what I just said before. And this is how far you go in life depends on you being, on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving and tolerant of the weak and strong. Because someday in life, you will have been all of this. And it's so beautiful because, um, one of the things that I have had to really learn about myself is to be kind, mm-hmm. not just to other people, but to myself, because I feel like the kindness I showed to myself, it's almost as strong and as genuine as power and powerful mm-hmm. to those that I give to people around me. So when George Washington Carver talked about being tender with the young, you mean, you mean you know, when you're with younger people, people that are younger than you, understand that they're still trying to figure out life. So don't expect them to know so many things. Be kind to them, be ten- tender to them, and then compassionate with the age. And I think about my parents sometimes because. I'm just impatient. It's like my mom and technology. I'm like, mom, why didn't I have you gotten this far by now? You know? And then, um, sympathetic with the striving and tolerant of the weak and strong. And I think the beautiful part of that about that post was that because it says some, sometime, because someday in life you will have been all of this. There are times you've been, we've been young before we'll grow old. We've been, we're striving. We're going to be weak or we've been weak before and we've experienced, um, some form of strength. So in all those categories of people is, I think the key thing is like seeing yourself as one of those people. And that's why it goes back to self-kindness. I wasn't always very, you know, attentive to what my, what I needed. I was that kind of person that knew about taking care of people more than I knew about taking care of myself. And I found that, you know, it wasn't very healthy. Um, there's an African proverb that says, never trust a, a mad person that gives you clothes. You know, a mad naked person, you know, giving you clothes like why you know, why can't they wear it for, you know, for themselves and all that? And that's why I feel like when you love yourself, if I love people genuinely, I will love myself first because mm-hmm. it's you're coming from a vessel. So if you're if there's no vessel in the first place or your water is poisoned, so what are you giving people? 
you know. And I'm not doing like hashtag self love, you know, treat yourself and things like that. But genuine love, like for every time I make a mistake, how kind I am I to myself? I, I was say I was I've said horrible things to myself that I would never dare say to somebody else that I that I didn't like. How much more people that I like? So yeah. I'm learning to treat myself with the same kind of respect and kindness that I you know that I've always done with people. So yeah. And that is all. <laughs> I really want to do this. It's so inspiring. <laughs> it's crazy. Okay. I have to ask you. I have to ask you. So okay. Seven posts that you've shared with us so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they in chronological order? No, 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 no. The order that I give them were not chronological. Do you want me to like tell you what number they were? No. No, no. I was just, because oh. normally after the reading, I do some sort of like, uh, uh, kind of like one word summary really fast and try to figure out if there's a trend. So oh, I just wanted to know let's, do that. let's do that. Okay. So, here we go. That. so for, and this is completely, um, yeah, the post through my very quick noting lens. Yeah. That's so, right. yeah. <laughs> so we've gone from I put angry question mark for the first one to possibly frustrated for the second one to isolation, Mm -hmm. love, Mm -hmm. confusion or shock for the next one, trust and then perspective. Wow. I'm glad it balanced out because, you know, the first few emotions were very strong and negative, but it's all good. I mean, but completely normal for shifting countries and shifting cultures. Yeah. 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 And the reason why I asked you if it was chronological is because that looks like the culture shock curve kind of. It's that whole thing of like, I'm angry. I'm not accepting of what's happening around me. Why did I move here? Oh my God, wait a minute. I remember what I like. Now I'm going to have that in my life. And suddenly like the emotional side is growing and growing. It it, it looks like the, the culture shock curve. Yeah. but it's a really wide range of things that you post about. Do you still post such a, a wide range? Of oh yeah, fact, I've picked, I write a lot now. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've branched out a lot. So yes, um, most of my posts are very observational, and I tend to reflect a lot on myself. Mm-hmm. And I think I've, as I've, I'm in my thirties now, um, I've gotten to a place where I'm more comfortable in my skin, mm-hmm. and in the person that I have become, in such a way that. I don't, I don't do things to impress people or maybe get the likes and, and, you know, be more famous on Instagram or things like that. Like the things I put out then, uh, every day I'm more genuine than I, than I was the day before. And so I write longer posts now and mm-hmm. I, I share a little bit about myself and being more vulnerable with my audience. Especially since I started my podcast show and I realized that if my show is about making people set their stories free, I needed to do that for myself. So I have, I've come a long way from that girl that was, you know, putting all of these one-liners and trying to be cheesy and inspirational. Mm-hmm. It's gotten real since then, you know. I've shared a lot about, you know, about my miscarriage, about, you know, just my struggle with my weight. I've struggled about, you know, just my emotions and my daddy issues. Like, so many things that I have, that I never thought that I would, you know, ever mm-hmm. publicly tell people. I'm more comfortable talking about them now. Because yeah. I realized that when we share our stories with people, we don't know what kind of communities we are building and I found people, people talk to me more now and I have friends that would just, you know, say hi and then start telling me their problems. And I thought to myself, well, I'm like a, well, I won't call myself a public figure, but I'm like somebody, like a public servant. I think that's the word. Like people have a, they have a, they can trust me more with their stories. Not as if I, I did anything distrustful, but I think because I've given myself so much out, yeah. you know, and, and be real about my struggle. And because people see the glory, they think, oh, you know, you're, you're so well accomplished, you're successful. But I'm like, hey, there's a story behind you you guys don't get to see. 
So I think it's very equally important for us to do that while we're still doing like the Photoshop pictures. I don't do Photoshop, by the way. But at least people still, I think genuineness and realness is something that I'm afraid I might lose and I don't want to lose that. So that's why I just keep doing that. It's an intentional practice for me. Yeah. So yeah, so I still put a lot of Facebook posts. I mean, that could be another conversation 20 years ago. <laughs> <down the day. laughs> That's and it's a great podcast. You're welcome to come on anytime. <laughs> no, I know. I know what you mean. I, I, I put a lot on online and when I f- first moved abroad and then I got a bit burnt and I backed away and I went back uh, to for a long time and I came back <clears throat> and it's a lot easier to control what you put online. And I've gotten a lot older and, mm. And there's other people putting more well-rounded things online and it's much more yeah. appealing than just the happy stuff. And yeah. um, to the point where when I had a hysterectomy like four, three, four years ago, I don't even remember yeah. now, I posted something about it online because the stigma oh. was ridiculous. And so I yeah. posted something kind of matter-of-factly and years late, like a year ago, somebody who I met online in language and learning community, we met in person and she said, you know, you have a post about hysterectomy. Are you sure you want that up there? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) I I know it looks like I'm kind of like here, there and everywhere. And I'm not thinking about it because that's because I do a lot of quick posts about things that are happening in the moment, but that was intentional. It was the stigma of needing the surgery that kind of kept me from having it for a while. And I needed Mm. to do something physically. I almost didn't I almost died because I was so terrified of the surgery and so not wanting to go through the the stigma of having to tell people, this is why I need to take time off from everything, work, Mm. school, everything. And I, and the stigma is ridiculous. It's a surgery. If a man was having a major surgery, he would not hesitate. I know. (laughs) But because it's down there for us, it was the stigma. And I was like, no, this needs to go out into the world. Oh, good for you. I feel, I felt similar with my miscarriage um, yeah. post and all that because I was just going crazy in my head, like just mm-hmm. the shame that came with it and just the struggle of everything. And I think about that. And this was like what December. Mm-hmm. I was second time I was having a miscarriage, and I think about just how scared I really was leading up to posting that story. Yeah, I remember my husband wasn't even was like I don't want people looking at you different. Like, he was really worried about me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, it happened in 2014. I couldn't share it. And, you know, that, you know, almost ate me up alive. Mm-hmm. And this time around, you know what? I just, I want to, I want to just let people know, like, and you know what? I don't even feel any way about it anymore. Like, I don't like clutch my pulse. Like, <gasps> Shocking. You know, I'm glad it's out there. And people that reached out to me after that post, I mean, it's worth it. Because like, I, like, you know, it just happens to people that you don't hear about it. And people are coming out of the woods. They say, me too. Well, not the other, like the different kind yeah. of me too. Hashtag, yeah. like, not that. Yeah. But yeah, and um, yeah, so I mean, I feel like as long as you're you have a reason for doing those kind of things, it's okay to share, yeah. And I know uh, social media platforms are not equipped for those kind of realness, you know. But I think those that will relate with you might not make a lot of friends or make a lot of fans through those kind of posts, but if it's just one person's life that is saving by just saying, I thought I was the only one, now I'm no longer alone. Mm-hmm. It makes a world of a difference, and yeah. and that's why I still do this kind of things, and that's why you know I'm still gonna keep telling stories on my podcast, and you know trying to com- com- connect humanity one story at a time. Okay, I've been a terrible host. I haven't asked you to um, talk about your podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about your podcast? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Well, my pro- my podcast um name is the Morastable Podcast, and it was started last year, April fifth of twenty eighteen. It's hosted by me, Morastable, and I describe myself as Nigerian-born, U.S. Um, educated Korean-speaking, struggling intellectual, and it's a platform to share stories and um. Just, you know, cultural stories on, um, against the backdrop of so many topics. So I've had, um, someone come share about, um, human trafficking. She was a victim of human trafficking. I've had stories on child sexual abuse, a victim of that. Um, I've had stories on immigration, those whose parents, you know, were forced, who are forced immigrants here in the U.S. and that, you know, cultural aspects. I've had, um, stories on grief, on adjusting to life in the U.S. or wherever you are. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's designed for Blacks and Asians and those who love them, which is like everybody, because who doesn't like Black or Asian people, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just Excellent. a way to, exactly, to, to share our stories. So, yes, if anyone is listening to it, you can, the, the podcast is available on iTunes and wherever you listen to your podcast. On, I'm on 10 platforms, actually. And it's quite great getting some form of momentum. If you want to come on the show and share your story, no matter how bold or scary or crazy it is, and especially if I don't agree with some of the topics we're going to be talking about, but it's okay. Like <laughs> I said, I'm a public servant. I believe, you know, yeah, I'm a vessel to communicate your, your words out there, even if you don't agree on it. It's okay. You know, I'm not going to shut you down on my podcast. Um, I'm quite agreeable. You know, we can disagree to it. We can agree to disagree and we'll still have fun either way. So yeah, that's what my show is about. Beautiful. Thank you. And listeners, I will have all of Mo's information down in the show notes or over on on Podbean. Yeah. Wherever the show notes are in, oh my gosh, there's way too many podcast players out there in the world. Tell me about it. (laughs) Tell me about it. I think (sighs) we should also thank Tanya for introducing us, you know. Seriously. Wait a minute. Is that how we met? Yeah. That's right. You interviewed Tanya Crossman. Yes. Yeah. And then you saw her post, um, her post on Instagram. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh, Mo, I love you. So yeah. like, oh, let's connect. Hey, you want to come on the show? And yeah. Then, yeah. Yes. Thank you, Tanya. Thank she's you, Tanya Crossman. I'm actually editing her episode next week for Changing Scripts. She's coming up on the, uh, March, <laughs> the April season of Changing Scripts podcast. I can't. Oh, great. Can't straight. I will. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. She posted something. Did you see the lights post she did from Beijing? I did. I did. Oh, I that did. so fun. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's a small world after all. <laughs> small world. And social media is making it smaller. <laughs> I want to share with you a little bit of a meta moment with Expat Rewind podcast. And it's this. We're changing this year. We're seriously refining the focus. We have a few more writing-related podcast episodes. However, the interview that I did recently with Nicole Palazzo on the ExpatCast really, really made me think that I don't have enough books in my podcast. And I think it's fun that we've been experimenting with different artifacts that expats use to help them get through their first year. But selfishly, I want more book talk. I think this could work. So slowly but surely throughout 2019, we're going to veer more and more towards books. In fact, our next episode is going to focus on a book. Now, if you are a bookworm and you are an expat or you were an expat and a book helped you in adjusting to the cultural aspects of the new place that you were in, then 
please contact me and we'll get you on that new and refined bookish expat rewind. Uh, you can contact me on any social media platform, S-T-E-P-H-F-U-C-C-I-O. I am on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Tumblr, and that is also my Gmail address. So you can find me anywhere. And if you're in China, uh, that's my handle on WeChat as well. So when you were writing these posts on Facebook, who did you think you were writing them to? I'm not going to lie. I'll be like, I thought I was writing to my future self so that, you know, I could, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> it really wasn't. Really? No, you know, you know, people, you know how they just say hindsight is like 2020. Like all of a sudden you're like levitating above the rest of us. Like, well, that was a note to my future self. No. What? It was, it was a sense of, as you can see, some of them were like a sense of immediacy, mm. you know? Yeah. And I, th- and I think to a degree it was, it wasn't for my future self as much as my present self. And to see how the players around me, the people around me, you know, resonated with that person, with, with, with her, you know? So, like, the post on, um, I miss you guys, wherever, if I've touched your life in one way or the other. That was a note to my friends, you know, and those that I, I felt like we don't talk anymore. Mm-hmm. We don't talk anymore. That kind of, you know, thing. So, it was always usually a sense of immediacy for me because it wasn't future tense, you know, like, you know, trying to leave notes to my future self, no. And then for some, it was just something I had learned, like the post on um, George Washington with the, you know, be cautious to all and all that. Mm-hmm. That had, I mean, I, even before I posted that, I always used that as my signature. It was just a way to like let people know, okay, this is one of the things I believe in and it forms the very core of my ethos and all that. So yeah, mm-hmm. it was just, it was usually, so to, re- to recap my answers, it was for my present self, usually with a sense of immediacy, and trying to see what kind of sound bites I was going to get from the multiplayer around, multiplayers around, like the people around me, the stakeholders in my life, my friends, my family. And then other times it was just, you know, to share something I, you know, I, I enjoy or I've learned. So yeah, that's that. On any of these, was there any feedback that surprised you? Uh, <laughs> oh, that would be a very good one too. But I, I have to break, go to the individual posts, like, see them but yeah that's that's gonna take time i don't know if you have time because i have to because i what i did was take screenshots mm-hmm. of the posts themselves oh, but i didn't just from your memory was oh there... from my memory yeah. oh i think from the one of you know i if if i've ever impacted your life in a way i think i got one wasn't surprising it was just like oh we miss you too and all that you know <laughs> and um and I think the one of when uh, my son and my husband were from Nigeria, and yes, we do speak English. Um, I think someone was like, me too. Like I get asked that question a lot. Well, nothing really stands out. So maybe I just, I just don't remember. I, I, I didn't click on the comments, but yeah, I don't remember. This entire project, both the YouTube channel and the podcast started because I wrote this blog in 2003 and 2004 when I moved to Taiwan. Yeah. And in rereading the posts, <laughs> Oh my God, what I wrote about. It's amazing. There are things that I did every day that never mm-hmm. ended up in the posts. And yet there's things in the posts that I barely remember happening. So are there, is there anything as you were going through and selecting these posts, was there anything that you knew was happening in your life then, but that you didn't actually see in any of the posts? I think for me, it was that change in accepting that I'm always going to be neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. And the most times I've had struggles with that 
was when I was just trying to fight it. Like I still wanted to be as Nigerian as can be. Mm-hmm. And, but there were things that would constantly remind me that, okay, you're not Nigerian enough and you're never going to be American you know, enough. And it's by people telling me, so where are you from? That's one here. And then those back home saying, you sound differently. Or you're, you're being too American right now. And usually when my people from back home tell you that it's an insult, mm-hmm. like you start sounding American, mm-hmm. almost like you're not genuine anymore. Yeah. And, and I think that really made me, I fought back a lot. You know, you know, I was just like, no, 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 I'm never going to be that. You know, I, I'm always going to be Nigerian, be Nigerian. But I, I've come to terms with it. I mean, I came to terms with it a long time ago. But more so now that it's okay. Like, I think that's the beauty of the world that we can, you know, globalization and all that. Mm-hmm. We can pluck ourselves from one part of the country to another part of the country. And the fact that people can see different sides of us, like, okay, I'm thinking differently now. My thoughts are no longer the same way my thoughts were way back when I was in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. I think more from a global perspective where, you know, I just don't think of my actions you know, occurring in a vacuum. I think about whatever I do has a ripple effect on people around me. And but living in Nigeria, I was so boxed in. And I'm not saying Nigerians are like pigeonholed people now. For me, I was just, it was just trying to make it day by day mm-hmm. in such a way that I didn't have any, it was almost like man, like everyone for themselves, you know, that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. But I think living in the U.S. here and mixing with people from different parts of the world, people whose stories you've heard on CNN or whatever news outlet out there, and paints their countries as, you know, a third world, you know, bomb blasting country. And I realized that, no, like, we all have things that, you know, we can always relate to. So I found myself seeing people as people and not looking at them as, you know, oh, this person is from India, so they have to be this, you know, like stereotyping in a way. So I think that struggle to be one thing, Nigerian, and fight it and not be labeled non-Nigerian enough, I didn't realize that there was a war brewing inside of me. I had to shed that mentality away to become the person that I am right now. So, yeah, I mean, I, I went home last year twice, mm-hmm. and I've had that comment a lot, like, oh, you're different. I'm like, yes. If you lived in, in a place for eight years, you're going to be different as well. Of course you're But guess what? Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. I bring a new form of perspective to the table, mm-hmm. but I'm hoping that we can still keep having that dialogue enough. Mm-hmm. My culture is something that you cannot take away from me, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm always going to be Nigerian. I might not be a hundred percent Nigerian. Like most of you would define it anymore, but you know what? It's given me a baseline to start and add more to it. Mm-hmm. And my interactions with people, you know, um, around here from different parts of the world has made me connected to them a lot. Like I hear anything about Korean right now and my ears just perk up because, you know, that's a country I'm so much in love with. I have friends from India that, you know, I see something about India or, you know, or the other day I'd gone for a tea with some ladies. And they were eating samosas and chutney and didn't know what the word was. And I'm like, oh, that's samosa and that's chutney. Mm-hmm. And they're like, how do you know it? I'm like, I have Indian friends and I'm eating that a lot. And I had explained to them, you know, the history behind it and how they ate it that way. I probably wouldn't have known that in Nigeria, but my interaction with people here in here, and this is just food on a very superficial level. There are deeper, you know, examples I could use more than just food. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm just saying that, you know, my, my willingness to just share what I thought my identity was and just, explore my environment around me mm-hmm. has made me a better person for it has made me understand that there's some things that can never be erased from me even if the world says i'm not 100 percent this it's fine i don't want to be 100 percent that but i've gained so many relationships along the way 
I've looked, I'm looking at humanity more as that person, I'm you and you me. Like we're one together and we're just trying to make it home and, you know, um, put food on the table. So that's that. I don't know if that sounded cheesy. No, no. <laughs> but you know, I'm going to ask you a blunt question to follow up with it. Sure. Where do you feel more Nigerian when you're in or outside of the country? It's a very good question. Should I tell and you the reason why I asked that? Why? Why? Okay. Because um, <laughs> when I'm, how do I say this? When I'm outside of the U.S., mm-hmm. I feel like I'm asked to be an unofficial mascot, which is ridiculous. <laughs> in the U.S., I, and especially, especially in Asia, but actually, no, it's, it's everywhere. Like I'm expected to be, I'm expected to know where I am and a lot about where I am, even if I've just gotten here, which I haven't this time, but whatever. And I'm expected to keep my finger on the pulse of everything that's happening in my home country as well. So I'm supposed to have a foot in both worlds. And I feel like I'm expected, like I feel more American outside the country than inside the country because I have immigrant parents in the U.S., despite the fact that they've been there for like almost 50 years now. I have immigrant parents. I have a weird last name and people always, always, always ask me where I'm from and don't really accept America as the answer in the U.S. So I'm not... I don't feel American when I'm in the U.S., but I'm forced to feel American when I leave the U.S. So that's why I'm asking. <laughs> very good question. I like you. I mean, I think it depends. But yeah. for the most part, I, I would say that I learned a lot about my history when I was here than I did when I was in Nigeria. Because uh-huh. in Nigeria, what you get to hear is from, you know, what the textbook context of it. Uh-huh. But what, what is usually missing in those narratives is your relationship with other countries. Yeah. You don't, uh, how other countries perceive you. You might get to know a little bit about it, but you don't see it exhibited exhibit fully until you leave that place of comfort and then move to a totally different country. Country, sorry. So for me, like you, sometimes I feel like I'm the designated Nigerian mascot. Like that, that hasn't even been paid for that gig. And <laughs> there's always, always this pressure. And I think in a way it's a good thing because I know that most people, when people think of Nigeria, they think of, you know, um, the scammers, the Nigerian prince. And that really bothered me a lot. So I was very conscious, always conscious to go the extra mile to let people know what my intentions are, like be very clear. Mm-hmm. And always want to be that ambassador for Nigeria. Because I just realized that it was on me and everybody else around me that were Nigerians to try to reverse some of these narratives people had about Nigeria. So in the beginning, I tried so hard to, you know, um, always make sure I was, you know, I was honest and I was straightforward and I wasn't going to do anything that would tarnish the image of the country. But that's a whole lot of burden to put on one person. Like, I didn't damage the country. Why is it my duty to fix it, you know? But I realized that just being a good person enough is enough. And from that goodness, people seeing you. And if they ask, where are you from? I can say Nigeria without having to, like, you know, say I'm Nigerian and this is what I'm doing it now. I wanted to turn myself around and be that person for myself. And by default, I was representing my country in a good way. And another thing was true songs, you know, um, songs. Um, now I follow a lot of social media um, handles from people that are, you know, major key players back home, like musicians and politicians. So oh. I'm keeping abreast. Yeah. Can you I'm keeping can abreast. listeners some of those? Oh, yeah. So um, <laughs> there's... um. This guy called Dr. Joe Abba, he's Nigerian and 
think he has a political position, but he, he does a lot of youth empowerment and he's verified on Twitter and his posts are just, you know, the things I look forward to. And then, um, I follow a lot of musicians on Instagram and there's Ada Kune Gold who's, you know, really good. And most of them just, you know, they tend, they tend to promote their own brand, but some of them are very relatable. And there's some, you know, funny skit blogs and people that like do jokes and, you know, um, do parodies of political events that, um, that I follow back up. So that kind of keeps me at least abreast of what's going on because a new dance step might come out or a new slang. And sometimes you find like, I don't know this. I haven't caught up on my vocabulary yet. <laughs> and then it makes you feel like, you know, that sense of otherness starts creeping like, well, you're not Nigerian fully anymore. So that's what you get for not, you know, being home. So I try my best and yes. So, but when I went home, when I went home, it made, I, I liked that I didn't have to be black. I don't know how that comes across, but, I didn't have to be anyone than just me, you know, even walking on the road, I saw people like me and I didn't have to feel like I was standing out. If I saw a white person while I was home, they, they didn't look, they looked like a minority. And I was like, what are you, I, my, my head, I'd be like, what are you doing here? You know? So yeah, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it depends. But, but for the most part, yes, I, I, I feel more Nigerian when I'm away from Nigeria yeah. than I ever was when I was back home. And for yeah. those reasons that I mentioned. Yeah. Oh, so looking back at these, sorry, that was a sigh of, of understanding. Not oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Looking back at those seven, <coughs> is there anything that surprises you about them now? Oh, I think I've mentioned that. The one of the, um, you know, yes, we're from Nigeria. Yes, we do speak English. Mm-hmm. I, I, like I said, I want to approach people more from the angle of cultural curiosity. Mm-hmm. So when people ask me, do you want to, are you planning to go back? You know, I always want to find out why are you really asking that question? Like what exactly do you want to know? And I'll try to do this because it's also a very, you have to be very skillful and adept and not making them feel stupid for answering that question or making them, you know, reading just additional meanings to it. So I try to really explore that state of mind so I can answer them properly. You know, some are really just, you know, just wondering if you have families that you want to go back and unite with. But a very tiny fraction of people are just, you know, being jerks about like, you know, America and all that. So, um, but at the same time, I always still give the benefit of the doubt, like, because I feel like it's very important for people that are not from here to help, you know, drive better, to tell their own stories and also, um, share the good things about their country. Cause they, people here in America, I mean, for the most part, they know all the bad things about your countries anyway. Some of them might not really be true. What is usually missing in those narratives is, that people are people and countries are countries, you know? And so um, I'm more patient now with people that want to ask me about my culture. And I find myself serving as a role as a, of, of an ambassador mm-hmm. and also applying some diplomacy as well in answering these questions. I'm not uncomfortable by them. And I really don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable asking me those questions. Yeah, sure. yeah. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> back to those initial questions that people ask when they notice that you're different what would be oh what would be a question that you'd want them to ask you instead of the where are you from why are you here kind of things that's a very tricky one to answer because well, i wouldn't want to be that person that tells me this is how you're supposed to ask the questions you know sure. but i hope that when they ask those questions there's a follow-up to it like oh by the way i was just Curious, you know, because you know your dress or your hair, or from the way you were talking, uh, your mannerism, you know, like tied to something, you know, not just yeah. 
you're taking someone out of the, or your name, like, oh my gosh, your name is pretty. Where's your name from? Like, you know, mm-hmm. what does it mean? I love those kind of questions because mm-hmm. usually that just lights me up because you've noticed it. I'm for my, for most Nigerians, mm-hmm. our names have meanings, like for the most part of it. So it's a story behind the way the our parents name us. So just don't ask a question because it's been so watered down and bastardized mm-hmm. and it can be a turn off to those that will really want to engage with you. So just have a preamble, you mm-hmm. know, or just say, I'm just curious. I just want to know, you know, mm-hmm. tie something to their, to their person or their carriage or something, but just don't leave it at a superficial level, but yeah. you know, and ask with a, a, a good motive, of course, except if you don't, just want to be a jerk about it. And then whatever they say back to you, just think you deserve it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, to answer your question, I don't, I don't think there's a, there's a wrong or right way to say it. it's just about yeah. the motive so yeah. make your motives clear enough yeah yeah sorry. no that's a really really good point really good because I've always been fascinated by different cultures and so for a very long time I would ask people where they were from if I heard like they had an accent or they were they looked like they were yeah. from the country I'd ask them and I I I could see a little bit of hesitation a lot of times and I'm like huh what's happening there and I didn't quite get it for a while and then after we started talking it became okay and then their guards came down but I yeah that is sometimes that information is used for the person asking to say you're different you shouldn't be here which is exactly exactly I think yeah and I think for me the humbling thing is you know I, I speak Korean and it's always shocking when, well, it's shocking to the Koreans I meet for the first time when I open my mouth and start speaking Korean and they look at me like, <gasps> like, how can you do this? How are these words coming out of your mouth? And the way they've been able to accept me really humbled me enough that, because initially I was really worried that they might think I'm just being fake about the whole thing. Like, you're not Korean, you're never going to be Korean. How dare you want to, you know, explore this culture, express with us. Yeah. But they've been very open-hearted. And so that kindness I have, I have received from this culture that I'm trying to adopt as a secondary culture has made me understand that we need to let people keep asking questions. And if they don't know how to ask you, right, mm-hmm. we can help them, you know, you know, be better at asking those kind of questions because at the core of it, there's always something we can learn from, you know, mm-hmm. one another. And I like food a lot, as you can tell. So I'm going to be using a lot of food examples. I've learned a lot from my Koreans, my Korean friends, mm-hmm. how to like, you know, cook rice better, how to make bulgogi mm, and things yummy. like that. Things I probably wouldn't have, you know, learned on my own, but I've learned a lot of things from them beyond food and just, you know, so if, if I wasn't, if I'd asked these questions the wrong way, mm-hmm. you know, they can see through my intention, like this person is trying to, you know, connect to our culture. So they want to, mm-hmm. they want to help me out. And that's why I think that we should still always keep that avenue for questions and, and yeah, yeah, just cultural curiosity is the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like when I get asked questions that I don't want to answer, I'll say, uh, usually that we don't ask each other that in my culture, but in, in, in whatever American culture, whatever, whatever, I, I usually we don't, but I'm here and I honestly don't care. So I'll answer it. But just so you know, if you're going to ask people that <laughs> outside of China, you probably don't want to start it as one of the first questions. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it's... But I'm here. Um, so exactly. it's their game. And I yeah, totally yeah. don't care. Like I would yeah. normally... I got in the habit of telling my students how old I was in the first few classes when I was teaching in Asia. Because I'm mm. like, I know that for you guys, that kind of gives you a sense of where I fit in and how formal you need to be and not be to me. And I'm like, first of all, I don't care really how formal you are to me. As long as you don't curse or yell at me, we're good. <laughs> but... I understand it's something you need to understand to know about me. And so here you yeah. go. I truly, yeah. truly don't care. It's not too personal. I 
so many people in the country have my passport information, which has my birthday anyway. So here you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, and of course, you know, some, sometimes I just, depending on how I feel like mm-hmm. I might give short answers or long answers, but mm-hmm. I try not to turn anyone away. You know, that genuinely yeah. wants to know about my culture. Cause I get excited yeah. just about my culture. And, yeah. You know, yeah, things yeah. Where can our listeners find you if they want to give you some feedback or ask you some questions? Well, yes. And I welcome questions and I welcome feedback. I'm, I don't bite, I promise. Um, my <laughs> website is... <laughs> Except for when she's eating bulgogi. Yes, that's what I jumped on. <laughs> um, my website is um, www.mosibyl.com, mosibyl.com, M as in Mike, O as in Oscar, S as in Sierra, I as in Indigo, B as in Bravo, Y as in Yellow, and then L as in Lima.com. I'm also on Instagram at mosibyl. Um, Twitter, you can find me on that same handle. Um, I'm on Kakao Talk, I'm on Facebook, and yeah, and I have a YouTube page. So just check my website out. It has everything about me. My pictures you have a are YouTube there. Page. And then, I didn't realize that. I do have a YouTube page, but I just, where I just upload all of my live videos and yes. things like that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, and I'm sure Stephanie will also post those information. So please connect with me, follow me on Instagram, ask questions. And if you want to be on my show as well, you know, you're welcome to join. <laughs> She's a very good host, by the way. Folks. Oh, thank you. So <laughs> oh, no, I can't. oh, I forgot to ask you. You were mentioning that names had very specific meanings. What does your name mean? Oh, yeah. So my full name, I have 12 names, by the way, but I'm not going to put you the torture of saying all of that. So my first name is Motolani. Yeah. Motolani. And our names are very, I'm Yoruba, by the way. Our names are very tonal. Like it's Doremi, Doremi, actually. So Motolani means someone of prestige. Like I'm worthy of a prestigious person, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Eniola is um, if you, you know, there's Ola, Ola, most of our names, and Yoruba concept is wealth. And my mom was just like, my mom, I told her, oh, you name me, you know, Motolani, which is like someone. Ola could also mean money, you know. And I'm like, am I supposed to be the money maker of the family? And she's like, no, <laughs> it's not money, it's wealth. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> and then and then my middle name is Eniola, and that means you know, someone of of wealth, someone of prestige. So yeah, those are the things between my two names. I have, you know, like I said, 12 names, but those are my first and middle name. Wow. 12. Is that, is that. It's not standard. It's not standard. I I was the only girl in my house. And um, I think my, my parents probably knew that I was going to be the only girl child. And, you know, being the first child, you know, from my, my, my parents and all that, I, I felt like then I got named by several people, like mm-hmm. my grandmas, my my grandparents from my paternal and maternal grandparents named me, um, my mom's sisters named me, my mom named me, of course, my dad named me, of course. So yeah, those names, and then I have like my baptismal names as, as well, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think in passports, do you have all twelve on your passport? Good God, no. <laughs> No, no, um, yeah, no, <laughs> no, I just have okay. you. <laughs> Mo, thank you so much. This has been really, truly amazing <laughs> conversation as me. always. Thank you. Thank you um, for having me. Thank you very much, Mo, for being on Expat Rewind today. It was a thrill to have you here. Thank you for having me, Stephanie, and this was fun.
Yeah. I don't get up a lot of, on Saturday mornings because that's like my sleeping day. That is but I knew it was going to be an exciting time for you. And, you know, I'm, yeah. it was really fun talking with you. And thanks for taking me down the memory lane. Uh, this post that have been buried in a deep, dark web. Thanks for <laughs> resurrecting them and, you know, having conversations around them. It was very nostalgic for me and fun as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Expat Rewind. More coming your way soon.